I was just idly surfing the internet. Probably had the television on, one eye on the television and one eye on my screen. And I came across a story about Grace Farrell. And the story was from the New York Times from March the 4th, 2011. And it was by a guy called Emmanuel Tui. And it was entitled Grace, A Life of Broken Promises. It says, 12 days ago, the frozen body of my childhood friend, Grace Farrell, was found on a few sheets of cardboard in an alcove at St. Bridget's Catholic Church on Avenue B in the East Village. It was a tragic end to a sad and troubled life. So it was that opening paragraph really that kind of struck me and stopped me in my tracks and said, this is an extraordinary story and I need to look into this. Grace died and when she did, Emmanuel wrote an article about her. I started reading some of the articles that were being written at the time by some of the newspapers here in New York and I felt there was something missing. I felt that I felt that the journalists weren't digging deep enough to figure out who was this person and I thought, well, no, that, that's not the grace that I knew. The grace that Emmanuel knew lived a life that had some parallels to his. Both their mothers were similar, they lived in the same place for a while, and they both had an ambition to go to America. So when Grace died, Emmanuel wanted to write an article about the grace he knew. In it, he wrote, Ironically, one interpretation of the word grace is favour or goodwill. Sadly, it would seem, little was shown to her when it truly mattered. Grace and Emmanuel first met here, on Fair Street in Drogheda, where they both lived in a children's home. In Drogheda, we were often referred to as the orphanage kids. Uh, and the irony was that St Vincent's wasn't an orphanage. Most of the kids there had parents. They just didn't have parents who could look after them. Emmanuel's story starts nine years before Grace's. He was born in 1966 and was placed in the children's home in Drogheda when he was just one and a half. He was one of about a hundred children. Everybody loved him. It was easy to love Emmanuel, you know. Definitely Emmanuel was, was an angel. Yeah. My name is Catherine Prendergast. I'm a daughter of charity. My first appointment was in 1969 in St Vincent's home in Drogheda. I was supposed to be the, the sort of house mother, as they called us, you know, the person in charge of the care of that group of children, 19 or 20 children. And that was where I first met Emmanuel. Now his two brothers and his sister were also in that group. But he was the baby of the group. And I think he was really loved by all the kids. He was a very attractive youngster and you couldn't but relate to this little guy, you know. The, the nearest thing would be if you could, it would be a combination of the story of Annie and boarding school. You know, maybe Dead Poet Society in terms of structure. It was like, it was chaos and it was very organised. Chaos in the sense that it's a lot of children to contend with, it's a lot of, lot of noise... As I remember it, they had a lot of freedom because I can remember going upstairs and looking back and here was Emmanuel on the flight below and he said, I'm coming, I'm coming. You know, that kind of thing went on. So, so they weren't confined 
very rigidly, you know, to spaces as preschool children. Well, Emmanuel was very bright, very persistent. He always wanted to keep up with doing what everyone was doing, never wanted to be left behind. I'm picking it out, and I worked as a childcare worker in uh, Fair Street. If anyone was at him at all, his brothers and sisters stood up for him, especially Mary, you know, they all looked out for him. He was very loved, he really was, yeah, yeah. Friendly, inquisitive, articulate, black hair, freckles, bright eyes. You know, I went and collected him, so we'd lovely chats walking back from school. And like if I was doing craft or anything with them, he wanted to do it just as good as everyone else, and he was four, and like the others were eight and nine and ten. You got up in the morning, like every other kid, you had your breakfast, you went to the local school, I went to the, the local primary school and then later the Christian Brothers. You had your chores, do your homework, you had your tea, you watched a few programs, Top of the Pops, Little House in the Prairie, whatever it was, and then you went to bed. I have a nephew the very same age as Emmanuel. He was a, a broader build than Emmanuel. And um, my sister had bought a beautiful grey kind of serge coat for him. And... Uh, Aidan grew out of it very quickly and she was horrified that he had grown out of his coat so fast. So she was talking about it one day that I was visiting and I said, I know somebody who would fit that coat. So I brought it back. So Emmanuel was all dressed up and looking great in that little coat. If it was now, I suppose we'd have a photograph of it. But I can still see him walking down the street with one of the staff in his little coat. It's just a, a nice memory, you know. There were lots of nice memories around Emmanuel's time in the home. He had come in young enough not to remember life beforehand. He was the baby, and he got lots of attention. When Grace came, years later, she was older, more troubled, and lacked the two things Emmanuel had, stability and continuity. In the home, he had one adult constantly in his life. Sister Stella. She became my rock for the next 20 years, and basically was the mother, the one that did everything a mother does, uh, and played that role for me and for 21 other kids. Despite Stella's presence, summer was an anxious time for Emmanuel. One of the things that I copped on to earlier on was that, you know, a nun would be there for a few years and then she'd be gone. And those orders to move came out usually around summertime. And there'd be a nun looking after a group and then you know, the summer would come and she'd be given her orders to go to maybe another group home. And you always worried about that as you got older because I was very attached to Stella and as I bonded with her over the years, I began to realise as I got older, I saw other nuns coming and going that were in charge of other children's groups and I saw the chain reaction that that had you know they'd consolidate the groups or a new nun would come in and the impact it would have on my peers and you wondered okay when is sister Stella going to go when are they going to tell her so as the summer started you wondered okay sometime in July something's going to, hap- going to happen and then come August she's going to go and you're going to start the new school year with another nun whom you don't know you've no history no relationship with and you're going to have to establish one it never happened but I always worried that it would. And I don't know which is worse because it didn't happen. I didn't have to go through it. But the fear of it happening was the fear of losing somebody. Oh God, I, 
I just feel very sad that a youngster would have that kind of worry. For a youngster, that's a bit like a death or a separation. One of the things that you didn't have starting in life for me, you know, was stability. You know, I, did, I lost my parents at an early age because they weren't able to take care of me. I'm put in this strange place. Um, I don't know any different, but I don't know what's next. Grace died, and when she did, Emmanuel wrote an article about her. In the article, he told how, when he was a teenager, a new girl came into the children's home. Mary Grace Farrell came into my life when she was barely seven years old, and I was 16. I grew up in St Vincent's Children's Home, run by the Daughters of Charity in Drogheda, Ireland, and it was there that Grace spent three relatively happy years. She had... um blonde, sandy blonde hair. Tall and thin for her age, but also she seemed petite in some ways. Uh, I don't want to say frail, slight would probably be better. But she had a very loud and deep laugh, and she could be very mischievous. Emmanuel's article goes on to explain that originally Grace had been put up for adoption. Alas, the adoption was never finalised and Grace was returned to the foster care system She was quickly placed in another home, but it lasted only a matter of months before she was turned over to the local authorities again. She was then sent to St Vincent's to await an uncertain future. Grace never understood why the first placement failed, but she surely felt the awful rejection that came with the experience. She explained, Do you know the way you can't put hot food into a cold fridge? Well, I was the hot food, and the foster family was the cold fridge. She was just seven years old. She arrived, you know, in the home as a seven-year-old, coming from a foster family, uh, an adoption or whatever that hadn't worked out, and she has to make her way in the world, in this new world. She doesn't know any of the kids. She has to find somebody close to her in age, and she has to befriend, and she has to look out for herself. And there's not one person in that house that she really knows. Think about that. She loved time alone with the staff, We all felt special when it was one-on-one, and Grace was no exception. Like any small girl, she liked being taken along to run errands in the town, check out the latest styles in the local clothing stores, and maybe stop for a special treat at a downtown cafe. At bedtime, she loved an extra few minutes alone with one of the house parents to review the day and talk about what was on her mind. But those moments alone were fleeting, and ultimately did little to fill the deep void Grace felt in her life. The mother had been gone from... Not very long after she was born, as far as I gather. This is Grace's cousin, Diane. Did she know where her mother was? Or did she she knew she was in America, yeah. So how did she describe her mother or talk about her? She probably would have really portrayed her in a very, very positive light because I suppose somebody who doesn't have a parent, you always see them as maybe your knight in shining armour that if I get to meet this person, my life is going to be fulfilled and I'm going to be happy. And she always, always wanted that. And with her dad as well. But I'm not sure, I think there was other stuff going on there with contact and stuff, even with his own parents, I'm really not 100% certain. But certainly to meet her mum for her was huge, really huge. And she would have talked about it quite a lot, like she really, really wanted to do this. One of the things I remember and one of the things I was constantly told was that you know, my mother wanted to be in close proximity. In giving us up, she had made a tremendous sacrifice, but 
she didn't want to be out of our lives. She took some work in town. She worked in a, in a local hotel and she worked in a local restaurant, but she would always come in to the convent, uh, into the children's house and, and visit with us, take us out, take us downtown, that kind of thing. You know, we appreciate it, and she very much wanted her to be around, but she had her own struggles at the time with alcoholism. They continued really throughout her life. I think for me, the hard part was, like for any kid, is your mother's your mother, and you don't fully understand why she's not there. And so you feel a certain amount of resentment sometimes when she's not there, and then she comes in to your life on this day or that day, and then you feel a certain amount of resentment because she's interrupting the life that you, you, you're developing for yourself. I, I think as a, as a kid, you're kind of confused and frustrated and you're, you're not sure where you are half the time. And then she went away to England, uh, I'm not sure when, and there were letters back and forth. One of the things that both my father and mother were, were very good about was writing letters. And it was always fun to receive them because you knew you were going to get some money in it and to get a pound from England or, you know, a pound from Clara in County Offaly where the family came from was always a lot of fun. And that's really what you wanted as a kid because you could go buy something. But they would be interested to know how you were doing and we would have to sit down and write letters to them. And the letters would be dictated sometimes by Sister Stella. She'd say, Dear Mammy, Dear Daddy, I hope this letter finds you well. I am doing well. And it was all very rote, but it was uh, an important exercise because what it did was it helped create and cement some kind of a bond albeit from a distance so that you had some sense of recognition of who your parents were and who you who you were uh, as a person and even though you didn't have that closeness I, I wasn't close to either of my parents in all honesty but I knew they were my parents and it was important for me to have a sense of who they were. While they were in the children's home, Emmanuel and Grace went to local schools for their education. Grace's cousin Diane was in school with her. Did you ever go into the children's home when she was there? I did, actually, and it was lovely. I don't think she ever had any problems in it. I can't say for that, but she certainly never said she was extremely unhappy or there was, you know what I mean, anything untoward or anything in it. She hated the morning times because she hated getting out of bed. And I remember coming to school one morning and we were standing in the classroom and I was like, Grace... What what is that? And she's like, what? She used to get dressed in bed, so you know she'd take the nightdress down, put the shirt on, put the jumper on, and she came to school with the nightdress still around her waist. <laughs> Sitting with Diane is Shirley, who was also friends with Grace when they first met in school. She was like a little feeble thing, yeah, wasn't she? she? Was, I can yeah. still see her fingers the way she used to yeah, go with her that's hands right. and she, yeah, she she real long nails. nails. Long nails. Um, she'd be hugging you and just yeah, yeah. She was a lovable little she creature. Was, yeah, no, she, she really was. was. She could have a, this very terrible, serious frown and then this great guffaw that would come out of her. She had villainy in her as well, <laughs> hadn't she? Like she could be up to something and you wouldn't know. She'd have a, this calm it's face yeah. or a little smirk on her face. Like, but she had a lot of different, different sides, sides to her, really. Like everybody, I suppose. During Emmanuel and Grace's time in the children's home, the policy changed. The authorities came to realise that children did better when part of smaller family-sized groups or foster families. Emmanuel was introduced to a local family called the Pentonies, a family, in time, he came to regard as his own. The eldest daughter of this family worked in the home and they took a shine to me and she brought me home to her family of just a few miles outside Drogheda and I started going out there 
for day visits and day visits turned into overnight visits, turned into going for a weekend, going for holidays and that kind of thing. And the relationship blossomed to the point that that's where I go when I go home today. I'm 48 now and I've known them all my life. So they became this, you know, even though I lost my parents, if you like, at the beginning because they couldn't take care of me, I ended up with two families. While she was in the children's home, Grace didn't know it, but she had adult relations quite close by. She actually used to walk past her grandparents' house, not knowing, and they didn't know either, that she was their granddaughter. She used to go to the school in Balmacany up in the road. Oh. Yeah, remember her telling me that. Although Grace didn't have a proper family life, she appeared to be a very, very popular kid. She was a fun person, you know, she was easy to get to know Grace. You know, that's why she had a lot of friends. Yeah. You know, yeah, everybody kind was. of seen something going, in themselves yeah. through her that they liked or... And she, was, she wasn't into bitching and stuff like that, actually. Wasn't she not? No, no. Yeah, she just seemed to get on with everybody, yeah. She, really she was did. laid back, Grace. She was, As, yeah. A bigger part for would have been, you know, laid back, doesn't want any hassle. She was a cute kid, she was a fun kid. The end of primary school is an important time in a child's life, and this is particularly true for Grace and Emmanuel. In Grace's case, her grandparents discovered she was in the children's home and took her to live with them. She had a very good life yeah. with her grandparents. Like, she had the best of everything, yeah, the best of clothes, yeah. holidays. Yeah. I know her grandmother would have sent her, like, to elocution yeah. lessons and yeah. things like that. So, she, you know, she very was... Very well brought up. She they really looked after did. her very, very well. For Emmanuel, the end of primary school brought some uncertainty. He was academic, but bad at doing exams. So when the nuns got the results from his entrance exams into secondary school, he didn't do well and was destined for technical school to learn a trade. If you know me, you know I can't put an, a nail in a piece of wood without hurting my fingers. So that was like a disaster for me. And the nuns were smart enough to realise, oh, this is, this is a problem, uh, this is not a good idea. And they'd also begun to think, you know, I was getting into my teenage years and they felt if I was going to have a chance, I actually needed to get out of Drogheda. If I was going to have a chance in life and, and just escape... Not who I was, but where I was coming from, that I needed to be somewhere else. And the order looked around, and they broached the topic with me about boarding school. And, of course, the first thing I heard about boarding school, I said, no, I don't want to leave home. You know, you, the homesickness factor would start to kick in. You're leaving what's familiar and what you know. And I didn't want to do it, but we proceeded with the search. Finally, they settled on St. Patrick's in Armagh. And I just went three, four months later, September 1979. Nine years later, Grace started her secondary education. She remained in Drogheda and she remained friends with Shirley and Diane. <laughs> I think we were 12 in this one here and my lovely just, headscarf. And just describe this one here for me. Right? So this would have been at her Auntie Karen's wedding. So that was me and Grace in our best get-up <laughs> of the early 1990s. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Grace is wearing velvet top and black trousers and our Doc Martens because you couldn't leave your home she, without your Doc Martens. Summertime, maybe 93 or so, 92. At the time, what was around this time? Guns N' Roses and Nirvana. Yeah, Nirvana, Guns N' Roses. Huge grunge scene. Yeah. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, right, yeah. Pearl Jam. Yeah. 
and then we used to get the, the ink from a blue barrel and you put them on your black Doc Martens oh, and it would make them wine. go like purply whiny yeah. sort of colour because the Oxblood <laughs> Docs were really expensive at the time so we couldn't afford them it was just the black ones <laughs> <laughs> The shopping centre is still there actually and every Saturday this is when you put your best clothes on and everybody went down and you posed. The John Lennon glasses were out and you know the black jackets yeah. and the red lipstick and the white face. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was good. And the thing and about that Grace, one, uh, she, she loved her clothes. Yeah. Everything was always the best of everything, yeah. wasn't it? She designer. always had designer gear or the best of everything, yeah. Like a lot of teenagers, Emmanuel and Grace started experimenting with alcohol. And, like a lot of teenagers, occasionally they went too far. It was my birthday, it was around Christmas time and vodka and coke was the drink of choice, lethal combination, especially if you have too much of it the, the next day. And I was so sick by the end of the night, and then the whole next day, as punishment, I could have got expelled because uh, I was in boarding school at the time. But I didn't. They, the punishment was I had to go to class all day. And I was literally running from class to the bathroom and back to class again. So that kind of uh, gave you a valuable lesson quite early it on? Did. It did. It cured me and, you know, uh, it didn't stop me. But, um, it, it, yeah, I was careful about where I did it and when I did it. And, um, you know, I think coming from the background that I came from, I, you know, I was always apprehensive about drink. And then if I was going to drink, I wanted to control it, not it control me. We got some alcoholic beverages and we went up to a big farm, big uh, shed. That's where we went, a load of us, and mm. had our cans. Oh, my God, when I think of it. I have a 16-year-old son and I would kill have. him yeah. if he did that. Mm. Yeah, that's right, but we had a great time. Mm. <laughs> it was fun. But for Grace, it went beyond fun. There was a few instances like that, you know, we had to help Grace out, you know, if we were in a bar, she'd be in the, you know, we kind of had to help her out because she overindulged in drink or, you know, but nothing that would have kind of made you think, oh, this girl has a really, really big problem. We just always put it down to Grace always had more on her mind than anybody else. Actually, I'm just actually thinking now, remember, we actually were in my house one night, a load of friends, and she'd taken tablets I don't know what they were. It was some medication. We actually had to get an ambulance for her. It kind of did get to the stage where it was a lot of work to be out with her because you're just constantly minding her. Like, where is she? What is she doing? Who is she talking to? She used to be with a lot of undesirables. Yeah. People she shouldn't be with. Men, yeah. for instance, that she shouldn't be with. She'd see something in them. Or they'd give her attention. That's kind of, I think, probably why we drifted apart. We just got tired. It was too much hassle. I know it does sound awful, but um, to be babysitting somebody at that age where you just want to go and socialise yourself and not worry, where is she? Who is she with? Is she here? Is she gone? What's she taking? What's she doing? You know. She'd be in a world of her own. She could be staring at you. She could be staring at someone, but not intentionally. She'd be looking through you but just gone off in a little world of her own. She used to do that a lot. 
She yeah. sucked her tongue. It's all just coming back now, yeah. She did that She'd sit there and she never put the whole tongue in. It was yeah. just the, the top of her tongue and she'd she rub her eyebrow. Her, yeah. Suck her tongue and rub her eyebrow. She actually had a little bowl patch she in did, her eyebrow. Yeah. Like, I know it always upset her about her mum yeah. being away and her parents. Like, that did play in her mind an awful lot. Yeah. She was a troubled soul, Grace. She always was. I think she was always looking for love. Definitely, an affirmation probably as well, you know, that she was worthwhile and that she was loved. And I mean, her grandparents gave her such a wonderful life. They really mm -hmm. did. They were so good to her and brought her on holidays. I mean, anything she wanted, she got. They were really, really so good to her. Like, I think maybe the damage was done in years past, a, you know. A lost soul, really, that yeah. just couldn't connect. Yeah, we just want to give her a hug and tell her everybody loves her and everything's going to be all right. But it wasn't all right. Grace died, and when she did, Emmanuel wrote an article. Grace was a beautiful and engaging child with a bright sunny disposition. She was warm and affectionate and full of fun. She smiled often and loved to laugh deeply. In many respects, she was a normal child, though her early years were anything but. Grace was a very intuitive child and at times shockingly honest. She often reflected on how alone she felt in the world with no one of her own that she was connected to. Emmanuel finished boarding school in Armagh and went to college in Belfast, all the time coming back to the children's home in Drogheda at weekends. <laughs> then came his graduation. The day went well, Kenneth Branagh made a speech, and there was a garden party afterwards. I remember standing on the lawn. We were having this strawberry and champagne garden party, very English for Belfast. And just seeing you all your friends for the last time and realising it's over. And nothing had prepared me for it. I'd had boarding school, I'd had the children's home and I had college. I had structure. I belonged somewhere. I had a role to play. I was the little boy in the children's home. I knew my place in the pecking order. I went to boarding school. I knew my place in the class, in my, in my peer group. I went to college. I knew what was expected of me. I had to get my degree. As soon as it was over, I was no longer getting, you know, a grant to go to college. I had to give up my apartment in Belfast because I didn't have any money because everything I had, well, you know, I didn't have a job. And suddenly I realized I have to get a job and I have to get an apartment or a flat to stay in. And it's like, how do I do that? And nothing, nothing prepared me for that. Absolutely nothing. And it was stunning. And it was, the letdown was devastating because... I said, well, I've lived in Belfast for four years. I lived in Armagh for, for seven years before that. Drogheda was behind me in the rearview mirror. The children's home was gone. They had been closed and the kids had moved to houses. So there was nothing familiar for me in Drogheda. And I had to move to Dublin and I did not like Dublin. I took a job in Dunn stores to collect hangers in big bins and bring them downstairs and sort them. And I got an apartment on the north side just up from Parnell Square. And I was in a bed sit there. And it was the loneliest place in the world. It was just me and the four walls. When Grace left school, there was talk of her studying art, but nothing came of it. Then she went to England. After about a year, she came back, and it was obvious that she wasn't coping well. Yeah, I was up in Bulbergen. I remember she actually came to Bulbergen. And funny, it was actually the middle of the day, and she was drinking cans even in the middle of the day. And I remember my husband's brother at the time, he would have been only a kid, 
And he was like looking at her in the sitting room going, why is she drinking cans in the middle of the day? Like, do you know what I mean? Then Grace announced she was going to America to meet her mother. It was 1996 and she was 21. It was always there. It was always talked about was her mother in America. Yeah. And I knew, like, I think we all knew that she was going to go and try and find her mum and mm-hmm. get closure maybe, just to meet her and say, like, what happened? Why, you know, to, to well, find out, are who yeah. are you? You know, is there any of me and you? Like, just try and see herself. A couple of years before, Emmanuel had the same idea, to go to America. Even though he was pursuing a career he really liked as a radio journalist, he was finding life in Dublin tough and lonely. He wanted to emigrate. My sister had come and my brothers had come before me. And I was interested in the history of the place and I just felt I needed to go. So I applied for a visa multiple times, unsuccessfully. And then finally, I didn't get one but two through the lottery. How I ended up with two, I don't know, but I gave one back. And then in October of 93, I left and moved to New Jersey. Because of his interest in politics, Emmanuel eventually moved to Washington, D.C., where he worked in a hotel called the Phoenix Park Hotel basically a block from the capital, and I used that as my base to network and get to know people, to get an internship on Capitol Hill. And I did an internship with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and that was the time when the whole peace process was going on in Ireland, so all the people that were involved in the peace process were coming over to visit U.S. senators on the Foreign Relations Committee. You had Senator Senator Kennedy, Senator Chris Dodd, and all those people. And so I got a first-hand look as a young Irish person, watching all these people coming to try and do their bidding and the whole visa process for Jerry Adams was going on at that time. And I got a bird's eye view, if you like, or a front row seat. While things had gone well for Emmanuel in America, the same was not true for Grace. She did get to meet her mother, but by all accounts, the relationship was fraught and alcohol was playing a major role in Grace's life. She ended up on the streets of New York. One day, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, she was attacked by a group of women. It was near the home of a man named Albert Muniz. I ran out of cigarettes. And when I went out to get back, I see these girls kicking her. She was on the floor, trembling, you know. I say, hey, what are you doing? Are you crazy? She don't belong here. Well, you don't belong here either. You know, go back to wherever you be. Don't be hurting her. <clears throat> but then... I walked away, and they, they walked away, and they left her there. But then something told me to, to just turn around. So she was, she she stand up on her feet, and she started trembling, really trembling. And she was all wet, her hair, and, then, and I, I said, excuse me, young lady, uh, do you need help? Are you okay? She said, no, I'm not helping. I do need help. I'm not free. I'm not too well. And I took her in, like she was a wet kitten, like a wet bird, lost in her world. Trembling like a leaf, mom gave her uh, some soup. But she still was trembling. I said, why are you trembling? And she said, because I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and, and, and I need something. I said, okay, I'm going to go down and get your beer. And it worked. It worked. But then right from there, after her, she finished eating, and she fell asleep. She fell asleep like a baby. All she kept saying, thank you, God, thank you, God. She just praising to God. And, but she was sucking her thumb. You know, so that's where I realized that she was lacking some sense of nourishment in her, in her childhood. You know, when she was an infant or so. Um, what age was she at that point? 
She's about turn, just turned 21. From that first chance meeting, Albert and Grace moved in together. She was a great cook. I heard a lot from her friends that she was quite artistic. She was very artistic. She, she drew an angel and, and then birds and all that on the wall, which I was totally impressed. Uh, right now I'm an editor of a website, uh, cspan.org. In Washington, Emmanuel got himself a job in the area he loved, journalism. Network. It has three TV stations. He also got married and has two children. There's Jack. He's waking up. So he wants probably some lunch or something. Back in New York, Grace was also starting a family and giving up drink. She stopped. I mean, she stopped. She blossomed. She, you know, it's like a, a bird building her nest. She was taking care of the room for the arrival and all that. Grace and Albert had a baby boy, Oliver, and Grace seemed happy and settled. But that changed when Oliver was about two. Yeah, she started hanging out with uh, so-called buddies, female buddies. They drink or smoke grass. She would take off, come back three months later, you know, that every time she returned home, she was in a mess. And I would take her to the hospital, call the ambulance. You know, somebody would hit her, you know, when they were a black guy. Where would she hang out then? On the Lower East Side, she would disappear. She would totally, dis- believe me, she didn't want to be found. She wanted to be found. I had to get flyers with her picture, you know, a photograph and go over the East Side. A couple of friends of mine said they saw her in Thompson Square Park. Tompkins Square Park actually has a strong Irish connection. On the park is St. Bridget's Church, built by famine emigrants in the 1800s. Next door to St. Bridget's is the home of Father Patrick Maloney, who has run a charity in the area for nearly 60 years. Now, I knew her casually. I didn't know her well. She was a troubled person. She'd pass our door sometimes. She'd hang out in the park. She had her own sense of pride. And I've got so very many referrals of young Irish, many with alcohol drug problems. I've had the sad experience of burying some suicides, our own, our own. And denial is a terrible problem among us. And we go back to Grace. Grace would have been a lovely young woman in denial. Grace continued to drink and came in and out of Albert and her son Oliver's lives. One Saturday, in February 2011, Oliver was brought to his local church to be baptised. He was 12. He turned around and spoke to his dad. You know, Dad, this doesn't feel like I'm going to be baptised. I feel like I'm going to a funeral. And I said, why do you say that? I said, I don't know, Dad. I just feel that way. When he got baptised... And I looked up Avenue A, north, and I say a prayer to her. I said, Grace, please, God, guide her and bring her back home. The following morning, the doorbell rang. And I thought it was her. It wasn't, Grace. It was two police officers. And I said, OK, what's the bad news? And I said, we found Grace. They, they found her on a cardboard box, and she had a thin sheet covering her, very close to St. Bridges. And it was pretty cold that night. Many of them would get that feeling euphoric and then they die of exposure because they don't feel the cold creeping in on them. She probably went in her sleep very peacefully and tragically.
I mean, it's a very idyllic place here, just looking at the park. It's very beautiful, very serene. Even in winter, you can hear the birds. Emmanuel has come from Washington to the place in New York where Grace died. It's just a little corner and not really able to shield yourself from the elements. So if there was any kind of a wind whipping around that night, um, and I remember the photographs, uh, there were a few sheets of cardboard just scattered there, and that was her resting place. Both of you started out in the children's home in Drogheda. Both came to the States in, in the 1990s. Well, you know, uh, like I've said before, there but for the grace of God, um, you know, you've got these two parallel lives uh, and parallel tracks. Uh, I could have gone that way if things had turned out differently, if I hadn't had the support network I had, if I hadn't had the, the motivations I had. There were times I wondered, you know, there was, I had a very low point in my own life in Dublin where I really struggled and I wondered, you know, about my past and I wondered could I keep it together and make a life for, for myself, be successful. Thankfully, I was able to overcome it. Uh, she was able to overcome it at times, but in the end, uh, she succumbed to it, and uh, that's the sad part. For her to die young probably wasn't... Totally unexpected. Yeah. It's how she died. How she died was the, the bigger shock. Because as I said, she was always troubled. She was always troubled. Even from a family point of view, I mean, a headline with woman freezes to death, it just stabs at the heart of anybody Mm. who loved and knew her. There's only one method that works with the alcoholic, with the drug addict, with anybody. It's summed up in one word, love. First, you must teach that person to love dearly themselves. Grace died, and when she did, Emmanuel wrote an article about her. New Yorkers who noticed her passing, if it registered at all, saw Grace as another sad statistic. The first homeless person to die on the streets of New York this year, an immigrant from Ireland who lost her way, a fledgling artist with untapped potential. But those of us who knew her will remember her as a sweet child with a generous heart. I think if it was me and I was in trouble, uh, I would have come to her church as well because it would have reminded me of my past. It would have reminded me of the sisters in Drahada. It would have reminded me of growing up in the orphanage. And when life is difficult and you're facing challenges, you tend to go back to what you know. And, you know, this being an immigrant church or a church built by immigrants for immigrants, and she was an immigrant, Maybe this is a place where she felt at home, even if it wasn't the way she wanted her life to be. 